I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. All right. I'm still not sure how to start these exactly. How, how are you, Jordan? I'm fine. That, that Thanks that, for asking. <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my therapist response. I'm, is that, is that um, like year three my, of medical school? They, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I don't feel much need to talk about myself today. How are you? Okay, good. I feel a great need to talk about myself today. Isn't so. that convenient? It's a rare occurrence when I want to talk about myself. <laughs> finally, finally, I'm trying to pry something out of you. <laughs> I know. I was just like a, a, a tightly closed bivalve, an oyster. <laughs> bivalve. <Wow. Yep. laughs> marine I, I references. That, yeah. Well, I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was a kid, and that that could easily be an episode. My my fascination, <laughs> really obsession with the ocean, but. We're going to try to stay on target today because today we're going to give the we, people what they want. Yeah. I, I, let's see if we can, I was going to say plow through. That sounds not like great entertainment or great therapy. <laughs> I, but, try to, I try to keep plowing <laughs> metaphors out of my psychotherapy process. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, here, I can turn that around. Let, let, us, let us plow the fields that we've been sowing with the seeds of Clara and my past relationships. And all right, I'm done with this metaphor. Let's, let's get back into, so we've been talking about a lot of things, but a central narrative has been this relationship I've had slash have with a woman named Clara. Quick recap. Well, the OCD for me started 17 years ago at the end of a, a deep romantic relationship. Since then, I've struggled to really open my heart to women there has been some encouraging movement in that direction in the last two or three years. And then in January of this year, I met Clara. She lives in San Francisco. She was visiting New York. It was a, a very strong, immediate connection. She came back to visit me in New York in February. We had a really wonderful visit. I was to be coming out to San Francisco anyway to do some shows from mid-March to mid-June. Clara and I were very excited as much as we'd enjoyed our visits in New York. It's a little artificial to have this full on 24 seven time with someone. So we were, we were really looking forward to being able to have more of a sort of normal existence together in San Francisco where I would have my own life. She would have her own life, but we would see each other a lot. Then of course the COVID-19 pandemic began. My shows were going to be canceled and Clara and I had a conversation and we decided that, yeah, I should still come out because we were going to quarantine together. I did come out and what it would have been March 14th. She picked me up at the airport and immediately things felt different. The sort of ease of our connection, the, the, the joy that we took in each other's company and conversation was not at all the same. And I think we left off with her and I going on a hike, a hike that I'd fantasized about, probably more than I'd fantasized sexually about her, <laughs> because I do really, really love nature to an obsessive degree. And I'd done this hike many times alone, and I was so looking forward to sharing it with her. But when we actually went on this hike, it felt awkward. There was awkward silence, which we'd never once experienced an awkward silence together in past interactions the conversation was effortless and endless, or when there was a silence, it just felt like enjoying each other's presence in silence. But this felt like, not like she was a stranger, but yeah, like I was really reaching to try to, to force conversation to happen. And it made me feel lonely and it made me feel distant. And it exacerbated the doubts that I had as soon as she picked me up at the airport. And this is the a feature of the OCD is when early on when I'm getting to know a woman and there's no pressure, there's no sense of where this is going to go, there's no stakes, the OCD doesn't really operate. But as soon as things start to become a little bit more serious, the OCD kicks in and starts finding fault with that person or fault with the relationships, reasons why I should hit the eject button. And that was very strong with Clara as soon as she picked me up at the airport, but I'd been able to let some of that go through prayer but it was still there. So that that's where we left off. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. to pick up from that point, 
we were also trying to decide, should we stay in the Bay Area or should we go out to Martha's Vineyard, get a cheap rental house there since it was becoming clear that everything would be locked down. It wasn't just, I wouldn't be doing shows. We wouldn't be going to restaurants. We wouldn't be essentially leaving the house. So maybe more pleasant and maybe safer to go to a more pastoral environment. Or maybe we could go to a, a relative's house in Truckee. So I mentioned this because what I see in hindsight, I was going down the OCD rabbit hole to some extent about, well, where should we go? Should we stay here? Should we go there? And that undoubtedly affected not just how I was feeling, because I was starting to feel that OCD anxiety, but also I see in hindsight had to affect how she was um, feeling about me the sort of energy I was putting out basically on the ride over to go for this hike in the midst of the increasingly for me, painful silence. I I said to her, and this is something I'm sure you'll have stuff to comment on Jordan. For me, I was very much, this was a problem for me to be solved. It's like, why is she not being not just more available, but in the past, We had talked about this before. One of the things that was so striking about this relationship and about Clara is she was very, very expressive about how excited she was about me and how excited she was about this relationship in a way that didn't feel forced, didn't feel, it felt like a lot, but it also felt authentic. It was the way I felt too. I think often in new relationships, there's a tendency to play things a bit close to the vest, to play it a bit cool. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't doing that at all. And I wasn't doing that at all. And I see in hindsight that that made me feel very secure in the relationship. The fact that I knew this woman really, really was head over heels about me. I mean, we hadn't said, I love you. And I don't think I was feeling that yet at that point, but it certainly felt like things were moving in that direction. And so now I'm not getting that at all from her. I'm not getting the sense that she's super excited about me and that's making me feel insecure. And so on this car ride, I I asked her, I think maybe even more than once, I said, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And at one point she answered, she said, you know, this feels petty and like kind of selfish, but I'm just so angry about this whole situation because I feel like it makes things so much more difficult for us and it makes it less likely that things between us are going to work out. She explained that basically, and this seems obvious, but quarantining together is it's going to be more difficult than what we'd imagine we were going to have. <laughs> <laughs> and the phrase she said, she said, I'm afraid that we're throwing out the baby. We're, I'm afraid that we're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. The uh-huh. baby being this relationship and the potential it could have under normal circumstances. The bathwater, though, being these anything but normal circumstances of this pandemic and us being locked down. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'll just be so upset if basically if if things don't work out, but they could have under normal circumstances. And I'm really worried about that. And she said this, and in my head, what I was thinking, Jordan, was, eh, if, if, if this doesn't work out, I'm okay with that because honestly, I'm not valuing this relationship that highly right now because it feels really difficult and uncomfortable. And I thought we had this wonderful relationship, but now I'm questioning that. And it's very telling that it didn't register in my mind even intellectually that, well, maybe the reason things feel different isn't because her feelings towards you have suddenly changed. It's because there's a fucking pandemic going on. <laughs> and keep in mind, this is this is mid-March. This is the period of time when things are changing the most rapidly. Today, things are bad. I mean, they're worse. There are a lot, many more people have died. Many more people are sick. But there's a sense of sort of stability. It doesn't feel like things are changing on an hour by hour basis, but mid-March, it was literally every day. It was like, you know, another city's getting locked down. Trump is saying we'll open up by, by Easter. Other people are saying we'll be locked down for 18 months. There's some promise for this, this malaria therapy. Oh no, it's not working. It was just every hour the news was changing and things felt very unstable and anything felt possible in the worst possible sense of that. It felt like shit could get really, really bad, really, really quickly. 
But that wasn't registering with me. All that was registering is I'd had this beautiful, effortless connection with this woman, and now it did not feel effortless at all. So when she says the baby in the bathwater, I'm kind of like, well, you know what? If if this relationship doesn't work out now, I don't know if it would have worked out anyway. But I am still striving to connect to her, and there are still very sweet, very rich moments of connection and laughing with each other and just being physically close to each other. I mean, just at like a physical level, I crave this woman's proximity. I love holding her. I mean, I love having sex with her too, but just the just the physical affection is feels really good. But those moments are relatively few and far between. The next day she says, you know what? I don't want to go to Martha's Vineyard. I don't want to go to Truckee. I want to stay where we are in Oakland because I'm thinking, you know, I, I may want to go to my parents' place at some point. And I was like, okay, a little bit of relief from an OCD perspective. Like I don't have to make this decision. The decision's off the table. We're going to stay here. Is everything okay, Jordan? I'm aware that you're, 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 uh, I don't have your undivided attention. I'm just taking notes. Okay. All right, cool. I wasn't sure if you had to deal with something like an actual paying client. <laughs> it's funny that you ask that because I'm, of course, in my own therapy as a client now. I am doing video sessions with my therapist and she was taking notes the other day, but it was off screen, so I couldn't tell what she was doing. And I asked a similar question because I was aware of myself not knowing what she was doing off screen, you know, she could be flipping through Facebook or something. Obviously she wasn't, she was taking notes to better, <laughs> to, you know, to better provide care for me. Um, but well, I needed to check on that. <laughs> and this is sort of, yeah. And this is sort of exactly what I'm talking about. So you were doing something that actually, well, this is a little different. You were doing something that was actually for my benefit as a pseudo client. Similarly with Clara, Clearly, I, I recognize now that a lot of what she was going through, it had nothing to do with her diminished affections for me. It was a pandemic, yeah. but I was very concerned that it reflected on me. Yeah. And meanwhile, Jordan is actually posting on Twitter, looking for a new podcast co-host. Adam <laughs> way, too, way too self-absorbed, even for therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comics want free, not therapy? <laughs> He's a, there's a concept in psychoanalysis of someone being unanalyzable, which is a historic. It's a very problematic term, historically very very tied up in sort of race and class politics. You know, it, back in Freud's day, it was thought that, for example, the Irish were unanalyzable. <laughs> we the field now the field now recognizes, of course, that the. The Irish are was, fully human. <laughs> the Irish are fully human and fully analyzable. And that really the problem lay with the psychoanalytic theoreticians, not with the Irish. But uh, but it turns out Adam Strauss unanalyzable. <laughs> so but this is so interesting. And I love when these things happen in the moment because yes, that was a similar a similar dynamic, obviously more fraught with a woman who I'm having this intense relationship with. Well, of course, but it, it highlights a central principle of psychotherapy and especially psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which I've brought up here or there previously. And I'm sure in time we'll get into much more, but which is the idea of transference, um, which is the concept that experiences that you have with me as a therapist provide some of if not the most important data points for understanding how your mind works so that a lot of people go into therapy thinking that the relationship or feelings they have toward their therapist and vice versa are not important or are sort of if they're annoyed with their therapist it's almost a distraction from the important work that's supposed to be going on or they're not supposed to get mad at their therapist they're supposed to like them all the time and um a psychoanalytic psychodynamic psychotherapy viewpoint is exactly the opposite it's that therapists of my bent get get all sorts of excited if 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 a client gets mad at them it's like oh good all right we're getting to the good stuff that's that's when you're you hit pay dirt as as i've someone very close to me shared with me there they started to have that come up with their therapist they started to get angry at them and the therapist said now you're cooking with gas <laughs> it's like that's I, when you're really doing the work. 
I love it. And it's worth noting that I've never done this sort of therapy. We've talked about this before. I've done a lot of more broadly psychodynamic therapy, which I would define as kind of like understanding, exploring what's going on in my life in a very thought-based way. Like, oh, this is what's happening with my mom when I was a kid and I was in therapy, or this is what's happening with this relationship, and here's a perspective you can bring to it. And I've more recently, I've done a lot of cognitive behavioral and ACT therapy, which is often focused on what's happening in my body, my mind at the moment, but I've never been in a therapeutic relationship. And I mean, I've been in how many sessions with therapists in my life? I'm going to say, I could do some quick math, but it's probably approaching four digits, probably approaching a thousand over my <laughs> long client career. And I've okay. never delved into exploration of my relationship with the therapist. I mean, I think it's a, it's just a matter of what the the kind of healthcare system prioritizes. And unfortunately, we live in a society where the healthcare system does not prioritize paying for what the client actually needs, which obviously in your case is doing a pretend therapy treatment on a podcast with your friend. <laughs> I think I think my I think Obamacare is gonna pay for our our, our podcast hosting website. Oh. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. <laughs> my PCP did did refer me to you for this. <laughs> God, as long as the paperwork is in place. But I, but I think it's less of a financial thing because I have, uh, and I've paid out of pocket, gone in for long, long, you know, therapeutic yeah. relationships. It yeah. hasn't just been ten sessions and you're done. But I think it's been the therapeutic orientation, and part of that reflects the fact that the standard of care for OCD is not this sort of therapy. Yeah. But what as what what I'm getting more and more excited about is the prospect of well, maybe that's a mistake. May, mm -hmm. Maybe these these sort of interventions where you really are delving into more yeah psychodynamic psychoanalytic perspective actually do have i mean i think freud even acknowledged that he seemed to have a lot of difficulty getting through to ocd patients is that is that correct i don't know so much i think that <clears throat> i think that is it is a commonly held belief in the field that people with ocd people with really rigid mental structures that that involve a lot of obsessing are harder to reach than some with this sort of technique and i we're, think we're not as bad as the irish but we're, uh, <laughs> you're not the irish <laughs> but to but to what you were saying i would also look at that as perhaps it's um it's more of a yes and thing you maybe for many years you just weren't ready for that sort of approach you needed some more support around the day-to-day of your life, getting some relief from the OCD. And now as you've done a lot of work, you've done a lot of therapy, you've done a lot of psychedelic work, et cetera. Now you're ready for, for an, an, to look at it all through a new lens. When the, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I've always, <laughs> I've always objected to those sort of sayings where it's just kind of like, Oh, everything works out the way it should. But I don't know if you fix me, I'll have to be I'll be forced to reevaluate my my skepticism <laughs> when you fix I mean, me. When you fix me, I think that those sorts of little Instagram Instagrammable <laughs> caption bromides and sayings are. I think that's a that's a big aspect of of psychedelic therapy. Is one of the things that psychedelics do is they make the sort of obvious, almost trite sayings. They help you realize the deep truth in them. They kind of land in a new way. Like, oh wow, it's. They've, I always heard them say that it's a, like the Dalai Lama says kindness is my religion, but now I really, I really get that. Mm -hmm. That it's like something you might see on like stitched into a throw pillow in your, in your mother's <laughs> den, actually, actually under the influence of a, of a psychedelic medicine <laughs> resonates with profound universal truth. Absolutely. That, that, that has been my experience too, where so much of what I've kind of sneeringly dismissed as these, yeah, the, these anodyne bromides has, <laughs> has, has been like, oh yeah. I mean, and that connects to, I think one of the, the most fundamental values of psychedelics for me, which is just being humbled by it, just being humbled, seeing your own arrogance, yeah. seeing your own, yeah. Dismissiveness. Big time. So yeah, hopefully and, by and, the and, hopefully by the time listeners are hearing this podcast, our Instagram 
at not therapy podcast by the way to, to plug yep, yep, our plug. instagram will be our 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 bromide machine will be fully humming and we'll just be right. pumping out the daily <laughs> the daily spiritual <laughs> what what if we give us i think we should do that and give ourselves credit like it's the journey not the path adam strauss like we're the ones who first <laughs> totally, came up with this totally, let's just like start <laughs> start finding the most Good. Yeah, love is no, <laughs> love is the answer adam strauss <laughs> That really is the one of the fundamental ones that always comes through is psychedelics. Not always, but often is. Oh yeah, love is the answer. It really is. It really, <laughs> it really is. is. It's, it's like ah oh, fuck, man. Really, I got to do this. I got to forgive this person. I got to forgive myself. Yeah, I had to fly down here to the jungle and puke for seven days to to fully appreciate that. What was God on my mom's it. throat pillow? <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah. So bringing it back, this is this insecurity, this f- seeing Clara's behavior really as exclusively a reflection of me, not a reflection of the times that we were both going through, or even seeing it so much as a a uh, resonance with my own anxiety, my own o- OCD, as well as right. I was saying this that I wasn't really. In hindsight, I realized I wasn't really processing what was going on in the broader sense. I was obviously aware there was a pandemic. I was aware that it was going to be massively disruptive for my own life and career. I was aware that it was going to affect other people in in, in much worse ways. But yeah, it was just kind of this vague intellectual awareness. I wasn't processing it in any way. I certainly wasn't processing the emotions around it. Mm -hmm. And so... Clara, she had mentioned she doesn't want to leave. She wants to stay in Oakland. That's fine. And and then I decide to smoke marijuana. Marijuana. And we definitely want to do an episode on this because my weed usage, I would say I sometimes have concerns about it and I don't smoke that often. I smoke once a week on average, sometimes twice a week. But never more than that. Yeah, and when you say smoke, how can you quantify? Because one person's smoke is like a puff of a joint versus like three dabs. I'm a lightweight when it comes to weed. I'm a I'm a hardheaded when it comes to psychedelics. But with weed, I really so for me like one kind of one big puff, and then I am gone. And when I get stoned, so I get to this point of being very, very stoned quickly. And I stay in that state for hours and I don't fully revert to baseline until I've gone to sleep and I've woken up the next day. It affects me very strongly. It is a very powerful drug and not always an enjoyable drug, but I would say a useful one. Usually it is, it has been an important part of my creative process, Mm -hmm. my writing process. Less for writing, more for editing. There's that Hemingway. I think it's a Hemingway thing. Write drunk, edit sober. It may not be Hemingway, but and for me, it's more write sober, edit stoned. Seems to be very, very helpful for me. Write sober, edit stoned. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to explore this in another podcast because I think there's stuff to explore there because I feel like weed for me, there can be an element. I think psychological. Addiction is probably too strong, but it can serve an avoidance or an escape function, which is something I have to be very leery of because OCD Mm -hmm. is all about avoidance and escape. I I have Mm -hmm. that addictive sort of tendency. And also it can be an optimization thing by which I mean, I can be feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm in a good mood. Well, would it be better if I smoked weed? And then I can start to obsess about that. Well, maybe I should smoke. So it's something that I think would be fruitful to explore because I think it'll illuminate some fundamental things about how these optimization obsessive tendencies I have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important to come back to at some point. I think that the narrative, at least, you know, as I, as I see it in psychiatry, the conversations around problematic cannabis use are pretty primitive and unsophisticated in their grasp of the the subtleties of how weed can be 
can have downsides for people, I think, as is the discussion around pretty much all substances, psychoactive, you know, like drugs, yeah, alcohol and psychiatry. There's, you know, it's just sort of like, that's, that's bad or whatever. We don't think about it, but I think that really makes a lot of sense. Some of the, some of the subtleties of the potential downsides for weed for you. And I, would imagine there are a whole lot of people, especially as it becomes legalized and ubiquitously accessible. I think there's all, probably a lot of people struggling with with those specific issues or, or some version of them. And a really critical look at them might might be helpful for some people or helpful for you, at least helpful for me too. Yeah, I, I, I think it would be the just to sum up that my thought on this for the i when there's when there's a button i can press to potentially change my state whether it's sex whether it's getting high going on a hike i sometimes have trouble modulating how much i'm pressing that button because again <laughs> this optimization thing of like well you could feel better why wouldn't you feel better so that that's something i would like to explore more broadly state and, change button like a, yeah. it's, it's it's a great it's a it's a great metaphor because that's the classic way that these that any state changing agent, especially a substance, would be studied uh, in in psychiatry. Would be like first with lab animals, where are rats, right? Press, pressing Getting a lever over. to administer yeah. some cocaine to itself. So, <laughs> imagine Adam, Adam in like a big cage of the world with all these levers. Hike, sex, masturbate, get high, breath work, meditate. And my life does sometimes feel that way because I have such radical freedom of not having a day job and having enough interest in my work that I can kind of go where I want to to do what I want. So, so I decide to smoke weed and my thinking is there's a few things. One, I'm aware that Clara and I aren't really connecting and weed, it's a very double-edged sword with connecting with people for me. On one hand, it can facilitate a, a sense of connection with someone. Absolutely. But it can just as often, if not more often, have the opposite effect. It really, I think, depends on what my state is going into getting high, if I'm in a good mood. And of course, it massively depends on the other person's state. So my hope is maybe this will help me relax and it'll help us really connect. Clara, it's worth mentioning, does not do any substances. She quit drinking alcohol, I think, uh, maybe three years ago. And she actually quit weed about six months ago or so. Mm-hmm. And she really, really loved weed. And and it was it was not an easy decision for her, but she's she's followed through with that commitment. And it's one of the many things I admire about her is that someone who's able to say, okay, this is something that feels good in the moment, but it ultimately doesn't serve me, and I'm just gonna put it aside. And I think it speaks to her her strength, her ability to really adhere to what she thinks is best for herself. Mm. So she doesn't smoke, but I figure, yeah, I'll get stoned. So, and I actually asked her, I'm like, Hey, do you think I should smoke? Cause I'm actually having a little bit of OCD about this. The OCD, I should say very often does flare up about, should I smoke weed? Should I not smoke weed? <laughs> Button pressing decisions are very, um, v- very fertile for the OCD. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her one, maybe I'm looking for some OCD reassurance, but two, she's the person I'd be spending time with and she kind of smiles and she says, yeah, if you want to, I think you should. So I do. And very quickly I realized this was a mistake. The anxiety that I was trying to keep at bay starts flooding in the general pandemic anxiety, not so much about my own health, but just what the fuck is happening with the world. Shit is really, really weird right now. I'm not finding any fruitful creative directions. I'm trying to write, but it's not really going anywhere. And Clara and I are both in the same house. I'm mostly in the backyard, but whenever I come in to get some water and I'll try to chat with her, I'm entering immediately into this state of real social paranoia. I feel awkward. I feel weird. I mean, this is so unsurprising. I was feeling awkward and weird about my connection with this person before I smoked. Why the fuck did I think it was going to improve things? <laughs> of course, it would have. I mean, this is one of the classic effects of weed. Uh, one of my favorite comics, Mike Birbiglia, has a joke about why he quit smoking weed. He's like, yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but <laughs> the gist is 
yeah, I, I just became tired of spending six hours saying to my friends, hey, you guys still like me, right? <laughs> that's perfect. And that's what this felt like. I felt like I was in this very weak social position with her. She suddenly became almost this scary person who I was really like, does she even like me? And again, I was wondering about this before, but now every word that came out of my mouth when I was talking her with to her was immediately accompanied in my internal monologue by, why did you just say that? God, that was so stupid. Yeah. Why are you saying that to her? And Ugh. even more, it's starting to spiral into, oh man, you're pushing her away. She's going to lose even more attraction to, to you. Why are you doing just leave right now? And I'd walk out of the room, but then I'd want to make things right. And I'd go back in and I'm just really spiraling and starting to feel real anguish. Like, wow, this was a huge mistake to smoke weed. And this, this may be the, uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back here. And so I'm trying to connect with her, but it's not going well. And then it also seems like she doesn't really want to connect with me. She's doing some of her own creative work. Then she's doing some exercise and I'm continually saying, Hey, do you want to hang out? And what I hope is kind of a lighthearted jokey way, but I think is coming across as desperate. And she's like, well, no, I really want to do this. Or I really want to do that. And that's just feeding the insecurity. And I'm trying to act like nothing is a big deal because I am aware that I'm stoned. This is going to pass. Yes, it feels like a catastrophic mistake right now, but the best thing I can do is just kind of ride it out. But she picks up on the fact that I am quite upset about something. She doesn't know what. And she says, I'm sorry you're having a tough time. Hmm. And I say, it's okay. And we go to sleep. And I wake up a few times during the night feeling really like, man, you really screwed things up. You really screwed things up. But also saying, okay, you're making too big a deal out of this. It's just one night. And tomorrow you'll, um, you'll be better. I will say though, getting stoned wasn't a total mistake because one of the reasons I also like weed is it can sometimes give me some insights as to what's going on in my life. And I did have an insight. The insight I had, and this seems obvious, was, wow, Clara is totally right about this baby with a bathwater thing. I actually do value this relationship and I do want to make it work, but these circumstances are going to make it much harder. And so if it feels like things are not going well here, rather than trying to force ourselves to stay in quarantine, we should be prepared to just kind of, you know, to walk away from this mm -hmm. in the service of knowing that we can come back to this under normal, normal circumstances and presumably things will be as good as they were in the past. Another thing she had said earlier that really resonated when I was stoned was she had said, you know, it's very important for her to maintain a routine and that she's worried if we're just here 24 seven, we're not going to really be disciplined. And I realized, oh yeah, one reason I'm feeling weird is for all the freedom I have in my life. When I'm in New York, I do have some structure. I'm doing shows pretty much every night. I'm writing in the mornings. I'm doing more business career stuff during the afternoons. And I'm not doing any of that right now. So the next morning I wake up and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get on a routine. That's going to help me feel better. I'm going to be in a positive mood around Clara today because I was still feeling some of that lingering insecurity and everything is going to be fine. And we make breakfast and I'm feeling okay, a little insecure, but, but covering it up. And then she mentions that she is going to go to her parents' house. She had mentioned it like she might go in a few weeks or something. She's actually going to go in two days to her parents' house. Mm. And my immediate reaction is kind of like, what the fuck? And I actually say, wow, you're not really giving this a chance at all. Because that was my thinking at this point is, you know, let's see how this goes once we get into our own routines, once we figure out how to, how to, coexist with each other in these unusual circumstances. Once the circumstances themselves, the pandemic starts to feel a little bit more normal. So I say this to her, I say, wow, you're not really giving us a chance. And I feel a strong urge to say a lot more, to, to speak out of hurt and out of anger and out of insecurity. And in the past, I probably would have done that, but I have enough awareness to know that, okay, I'm having a strong emotional reaction. So I say, say what I said, and then I say, all right, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. And so I do. I go for a long walk. 
And on that walk, I call my dear friend, Mark. I call a few other friends. And then I call my dear friend and quasi-therapist, Jordan Iper, MD. (laughs) (laughs) And the narrative, as you know, Jordan, that I kind of put forth on all of these conversations with people is pretty much the same. The narrative that my mind is jumping to is this, that in the past, Clara was so over-the-top affectionate towards me. But now I'm seeing, oh, it was kind of this fair weather affection that as soon as I start becoming a little bit less secure, a little more anxious, a little less confident and happy, which I, of course, am because of this pandemic, even if I'm not fully processing it, she starts to pull away from me. But, and I said this to you on the phone, there was a bit of awareness of I might be jumping to conclusions too hastily because I'm very aware of this tendency and we explored it in these past relationships I had with Maddie and Beth. When I feel like someone is pulling away to immediately go to fuck this shit. If you're going to, you're going to step back a foot, I'm going to run away a mile. Like I'm going to take it away before you can basically. Mm -hmm. So I was aware that there was a real temptation to, to go to extreme conclusions about who she was, about what this relationship really was, and to use those conclusions to justify basically ending things. I, my memory from the phone call includes another part that you're not really highlighting, which is that the narrative was very much, I smoked weed and I fucked it up. Ah, yes. There was a lot I of self-flagellation. Weed. There was a lot of self-flagellation. I smoked weed, I got insecure, and I ruined it. So my memory is actually that I was pushing back on the phone call against that narrative, and my inclination was to bolster, was to sort of bolster this story of, this might not be all about you. This might not just be that you got high and ruined things. Everyone in a relationship is entitled to get too stoned and be awkward, you know, here or there. I wouldn't recommend doing it every day, but it, it happens as do as do any number of other embarrassing things in a in any strong relationship. And so I remember reacting pretty strongly to the way you presented her preliminary effusiveness and professed great enthusiasm for you. And then this really what felt to me as, as, as you were at least presenting it to me, as I was hearing it on this phone call, what felt as a really rapid turn, sort of an about face. I was feeling on the phone call somewhat protective of you and saying, no, you know what? This is really, this is really inconsistent behavior on her part. This is, it it felt, yeah, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, certainly don't want to badmouth Clara. Not that I know Clara and I've, I've learned the lesson in the past, uh, (laughs) never to, uh, Never to show all of your cards about someone's, you know, recent ex when they're calling you on the phone to confide in you <laughs> after a breakup. Don't jump on the bandwagon of like, oh, you didn't need that person. They were terrible. <laughs> I always thought they they were a total idiot. <laughs> anyway, because <laughs> turns out people sometimes break up and get back together and then right. you're not invited to the wedding. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I'm glad you're bringing this up because you're right. I think the narrative that I'm saying right now is actually integrate some of the stuff that you gave me. So you're right. I was really looking at it more as I messed this up by being stoned. I was awkward and needy and that pushed her away. And you very much did put forth this view of, yeah, this is, you know, if you really have this deep relationship, you being stoned and awkward once isn't enough, doesn't justify someone doing what you're telling me she's doing, pulling away like that. Yeah, that's what I was feeling at the time. I think it's as we get into it, it's it's more complex. And that's also not to minimize that feeling that you were having, because I have been there. I have been there specifically with this with this question of of weed making me feel awkward and, and nerdy with a woman and thinking that I that I ruined it by by smoking weed in her presence. And so that as you were telling the story of being high on that day and feeling awkward and clingy and tracking her, uh, the image in my mind is of you sort of 
she's going about her day and you're just sort of sitting there like tracking her like a little duckling as around yeah. like, she want to are you my mother are you my mother <laughs> not to bring up mothers but to bring up mothers i've i know that feeling and i know what that feeling is like when one has smoked too much pot and it is excruciating absolute misery and it was excruciating i and so i walked home and i had this whole idea in my head of what i was going to say to clara essentially what i'd related earlier that wow you know i believed all these strong feelings you professed now i'm seeing that it was just some fun little thing for you and like i think you probably thought you really liked me that much but clearly when i'm not at my most attractive and confident you just you start to distance yourself and my my beef with her was not that she was going to her parents but she had talked about something that she might do in a couple of weeks that we kind of had this option but that she was going so quickly she was going to be leaving in two days and it was like wow why don't you just give this a chance and so i we sat down together i was still aware in my body of this impulse towards anger but I really did not want to gratify that. And I think I did a reasonably good job, not a perfect job of not gratifying it. I tried to be open in the conversation. I started by, instead of laying out my accusations, by just asking her if there was something she wanted to say. And the conversation unfolded in such a way that I did eventually get to you know, my narrative, what I thought she was doing. Running and away from was, your not being attractive and confident. Yeah, and she- Admittedly- Adam Strauss is attractive and confident being such an Olympian height from which to fall that <laughs> the impact upon hitting the ground would, would crush, would crush any, any relationship unfortunate enough to, <laughs> to find itself underneath it. I would say, We'll get more to this in terms of sort of general confidence, because actually this is and you didn't even have the goatee yet. You didn't even have I know, the I know. yet at this point. It's, this is well, yeah. I don't. I don't think the goatee is going to last much longer. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I interrupted you. It's uh, better that you interrupt than you abandon. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's put put a pin that's in that one there. that that is not therapy podcast merch right there put a pin in that one for yeah for for encapsulating the dynamics negative of, attention is better than no attention i don't know if that's really true for me but big pin let's not even go down that road big pin yeah that that little snippet speaks volumes to the dynamics of jewish motherdom yeah um so clara who it bears saying is not jewish um not a I jewish do. <laughs> she, she, she uh so we sit down i i tell her you know it feels like you as soon as i'm less confident you run away and and i don't understand why you you know you're just cutting so quickly you're not giving this a chance and she's genuinely taken aback she's like she what she says is basically what i've been alluding to this whole thing which is hey this actually really doesn't have anything to do with you or not much to do with you there's guess what dude <laughs> The sky's part. <laughs> There's a pandemic right now. She says it very gently and with a little bit of surprise. Yeah. But she says, you know, I'm feeling I'm really struggling. Also, I think I mentioned that she has premenstrual dysphoric disorder and uh -huh. she was premenstrual at this time. But basically, her narrative is <laughs> makes a lot more sense, which is she's freaked the fuck out by what's going on right now in the world. When we agreed to quarantine together, which had only been a few days before, things felt a lot less scary. Things are changing very quickly. And she didn't notice me being particularly weird or awkward. All she noticed the day prior was it Adam stoned. And sometimes stoned people, when you're not stoned, are a little hard to relate to. She didn't she didn't notice major <laughs> difference in any way. She was basically lost in her own experience, and that experience was far more negative, not because of me, but because of what was going on than she'd expected. So the idea of quarantining together, which sounded like fun and appealing when we'd made those plans, now what she's really feeling is, and she can't say exactly why, but she's feeling very strongly she wants to be home with her parents. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she feels that her parents need her protection. It's just, it feels, and she's a very intuitive person. 
what I mean by that is she really trusts her intuition and seems very connected to it. And so she can't quite articulate logically why this is the right thing, but she knows this is the right thing. And she's talking and we're smiling at each other. And then instead of a sitting across the table, I'm sitting next to her and then we're touching each other and we're holding each other and we get into bed. I think I'm the one who suggests it. Maybe she does. One of us says, do you want to just spoon? We get into bed and I'm spooning her and I feel myself start to breathe very, very deeply. Like these real, like kind of like I'm moving some sort of energy out of my body. These, <sighs> and I feel like maybe I could cry. Mm. Crying, we could talk about this more another time, but I didn't cry once for many years when I was on SSRI anti anxiety medications. Now I can cry semi regularly. When I'm using psychedelics, with the exception of ayahuasca, I almost always cry. Mm -hmm. A high dose of LSD or mushrooms, I'm going to get a good cry in, and it's amazing. It's often the best part of the trip. But in terms of really crying, really sobbing, it's, it's not a common thing for me. I'd say outside of psychedelics, you know, a few times a year. And often I will have to encourage it. And so I can feel like there's kind of like you can sometimes feel a sneeze coming on. I can feel like maybe I could cry if I encourage it, and I do. And it opens up into this just massive titanic sobbing. I am mm -hmm. sobbing for like 10 minutes, and she's holding me now, and I'm just letting it rip. Mm. And I have never cried that way around another human being, I don't think. When I was mm -hmm. a kid, maybe, having a temper tantrum, but as an adult, I don't think yeah, I don't think I've ever had that complete abandoned cry around someone else. And it feels like I'm crying for everything. I'm crying for the fact that all the things I've been not processing, the fact that the world is a scarier and different place right now, and we don't know if it'll go back. We don't know when it'll go back to normal, and we know it probably won't ever quite go back to the way it was, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. The fact that Clara and I are going to have a much more difficult road to, to, to travel with our relationship. I'm crying about my father who's having some, not coronavirus related, but having some health issues. I'm crying for the world. And after that, we, we have sex and it feels more emotional than like strictly physically pleasurable. And often it feels emotional with her. It brings us closer together. And after that, I still do feel somewhat vulnerable, somewhat insecure, but a lot better, a lot more grounded. I'm breathing more easily and we're having dinner. And she mentions something about when we're finishing dinner that, oh, she wishes she hadn't eaten so much because she feels really stuffed. And now she has to go for a run with Jason, this guy who she, they were in a relationship years ago. Now they've just reunited. They haven't had sex since they've been reunited, but it seems like it's an important relationship to her. And Jason happens to live very close to where we're staying. And she says this and it just hits me right in the chest like this. Oh. Yeah. And I try to, I try to just kind of act like it's cool, but I can't maintain that facade for more than a few minutes. And finally yeah. I'm saying, no, this this just, this just feels really weird. And she's like, I know, I know it feels weird. I'm sorry. But she doesn't say, would you rather I not go? Mm. She doesn't say even, you know, I know it feels weird, but this is the last time I'm going to see him for a long time. And it's just going to be an hour. And also I really just want to get some exercise. So do you mind if I see him? She doesn't offer any accommodation or any sympathy to how I'm feeling in this moment. And the way I'm feeling in that moment is basically this kind of negates all the reconciliation we just achieved. All my, my bill of accusations that I'd leveled a few hours earlier that she had refuted. Now I'm like, oh, wow. this really, because oh, one of the things that in my narrative that had come through also was I'd become convinced that maybe she's just selfish, right? Like maybe she just kind of does what she wants without considering how it affects other people because she's just mm -hmm. decided to go to her parents' place on short notice right after I've flown across the country during a pandemic to be with her. And so this, her now going running with Jason, certainly reinforces that because it's like, 
after she's just seen me be so vulnerable. And also we only have, this is our next to last night together to go for a jog with this other dude just feels like really disregarding my vulnerability and my feelings. And the fact that she doesn't even seem concerned, that's the thing. If she had yeah. offered some sort of lip service to the fact that this is hard for you and is it okay, but she doesn't, it's just like, I'm doing this. I know it's weird, but I'm doing this. I mean, my emotional reaction to that is very similar. I feel like, what the fuck? That's not cool. Yeah. yeah, I feel some of that some of that hurt when she says she's going on a run with Jason. I totally get that. I think that's justified. I'm struck just in terms of your process as we're understanding it. I'm struck by the swings from one extreme to the other and back again in this whole cascade. There's a lot of black and white thinking. That's a very... I'm sure that's a term you're familiar with. It's a very, very common term in, in some types of psychotherapy, some psychological theories. But there's, yeah, there's not a lot of gray here. It's, she's terrible. Oh, everything's better. She's terrible again. And yes, that makes a lot of sense. That's a very, that's very common to have, have that type of thinking, especially when one's feeling vulnerable and wounded. Well, and I'll say it's something I've heard certainly in the context of context of therapy, but I've also heard it from some of my earliest memories. My mother would say, you know, things aren't always black and white, Adam. And I know I'm giving, I'm dangling such rich catnip in front of ah, Jordan. He's, ah, he wants to delve into ah. it. <laughs> we will get into this, but I, let's, let's put aside the mom aspect there. I think it's noteworthy simply because this has been, I think, a characteristic of my thinking from an early age, and not just my mom. I heard it from other people too, though I do associate it most with with my mom. Oh my god, I can't wait! Biggest pin in the world, putting that. Wait, it's like a voodoo doll size knitting pin in that one. <laughs> you can find it easily. Not that there's any chance Jordan would lose that thread, but so yes, there's a lot of black and white thinking. She goes for a run with Jason leaving me with 90 minutes to fucking stew on this shit. And now I am off to the races. Not only does this reinforce everything I was afraid about, but now there's new fears coming in. I'm like, maybe this woman just kind of gets off on her power, mm -hmm. which is a crazy thing. Nothing in our relationship had indicated that, but I'm actually going to the point of paranoia. And I'm thinking, I just don't know this person at all. And so I unfold the couch in the guest bedroom because she's fucking sleeping there tonight. And I'm just, I'm in my head, I'm racing around all the things I want to say to her, but I'm also saying to myself, don't say anything, Adam. Don't say anything. You're very upset right now. And don't say anything for two reasons. One, as always, be aware of this very keen desire to act out of anger, to burn bridges because it feels safer. Being alone feels safer. There's a party that's going to be looking for a reason to slam the door. And two, if this paranoia is in fact not paranoia, if it's justified, if she's somehow getting off on this power or something, don't give her the satisfaction. Fuck that. Mm. Either way, you're best served by being cold and firm and not emotional tonight. And I greet her at the door and I say, so you're sleeping in this room and I show her and she just looks at me and says, okay which inflames my emotions even more because it's like, oh, she's just, she's cool as a cucumber, you know? Like she's, <laughs> yeah, maybe she is getting off on this. I'm, Serial I'm really, killer. Yeah, like, and for the next few hours, she's in the kitchen. I'm in the bedroom or living room, but I'm continually going into the kitchen on the, under the pretense of like getting water because I'm hoping she'll <laughs> say something. She'll have some Aww. justification. I want her to give me something, throw me and some sort of bone. You have, you communicated before she went on the run that you were hurt. The some part yeah. of our communication before was me just saying, this is, this is weird. And she's like, yeah, I know. And I don't know if I said, I think I might've said, I, I don't know if I said, I, I wish you wouldn't go. I don't know if I expressed it that clearly. But it, was very it doesn't clear. sound like you shared, you shared all that much about the effect that the the things that you were feeling inside. Right. No, I didn't. Yeah. I think it was yeah. clear to her that I was upset about it. But she was doing, she was making the ultimate transgression, which was not reading your mind. 
<laughs> she was failing to read your mind. I mean, I know you're being facetious, but I don't actually think that. I'm being facetious, I'm not, but I'm you not. are. But I don't know if. But right, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with uh, that. I was that I felt like. No, I don't think that's why I was upset. I don't think I was upset because she didn't intuit how I was feeling. I think I was upset because she should because the little bit that she could intuit from my reaction and what had happened that whole day, I would have hoped. Let me put it this way: there was no question that she knew I was upset. Okay. So the fact that knowing that and what we had just been through that she was still choosing to go on this run was to me indicative of, again, someone who was probably very selfish, does what she wants, who cares about how it makes other people feel, probably wasn't really that into me the entire time, was just fanning the flames of these fun emotions. Also, it felt at a very concrete level, she's choosing this other dude over me. I want to be with her for this hour, hour and a half, but she's choosing this other dude. So to what you're saying, Jordan, was I upset that she didn't I'm not, I'm not, I I don't want it to sound like I'm making the point that the reason for your being upset was that she wasn't reading your mind. Obviously I'm upset too. I'm upset with you over all the different things, but you didn't communicate a heck of a lot with her about what was going on with you. And perhaps there was a fantasy that she would have been able to intuit more or read your mind more than was reasonable to expect. I I say that b- because that's very common and it's something that I have experienced is this kind of infantile level distress that someone can't that a woman can't read my mind obviously because that's how it is for infants they can't use words so they just can burp and cry and stuff and I think we often carry residues of that inside of us. Yeah, I I think, well, what's interesting is as you were talking, something occurred to me related to that, which is at the very least, because I didn't totally express how much, how upset I was, it's certainly easy to imagine that in her mind, she could have justified it a little bit more like, oh, Adam's probably a little annoyed, but maybe didn't perceive it as, as devastating as it felt to me, whatever the case may be, yeah. my, my mind at this point was jumping to all these sort of conclusions. And yeah, so I'm going into the kitchen continually looking for her to say at more than once I say to her, basically, do you have anything to say for yourself? And she says, no, which in a way that seems like, oh, is there a little hint of a smirk there? Like I'm really, it's, I'm a little bit mm-hmm. paranoid at this point. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm coming back to don't react. But I also, in addition to this paranoia and anger, there's this real anguish that yes, I probably did fuck things up by the weed, but also even if I didn't, she's not who I thought it what she was, and this whole thing is falling apart. <sighs> and finally, I just start kind of letting her have it a little bit. They said something like, "Wow, you really just don't care about how you affect other people, do you?" And she's like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "You know what? Forget it. It's not even worth talking about." And I, <laughs> but then I I start walking out, but then I storm back in because I want I I want some resolution. Whether that resolution comes from letting her have it and and her acknowledging or me seeing that, yes, she really is not who I thought she was, or maybe there is something that can be soothing and, and satisfying in a positive sense that can come out of this. So I go into this kind of really being pretty accusatory, you know, saying it seems like you're just selfish. You don't care about how your actions affect other people. Maybe you just get off on the power. Uh, I actually say to her, like, I just don't trust you because so the next day she's going to be running some errands in San Francisco and then coming back. And I mentioned something like how I don't want her in the house. If I'm out going for a walk, I don't want her in the house when I'm not here because I don't trust her. I say, like, I don't think you would steal the TV, but maybe you would. And I'm not saying it to get a rise out of her. I don't really believe it, but I am. My mind is is running to these places where it's like, you don't know this woman. You can't trust her in any way, shape, or form. But eventually, she does start talking. And what she says basically is she really does not like conflict. And so when someone is angry at her, she freezes up. And so when she could tell that I was angry about her going to run with Jason, 
she said as soon as she walked out of the house, she knew she'd made a mistake and she should have tried to reassure me or something, but she just wanted to get out as soon as she felt my anger coming at her. Mm. And that this whole last few hours with me storming around and I'd ask her if she has anything to say, she would just freeze. Mm. But that basically these were plans she had with Jason before. She didn't really realize how much it would upset me until it was already happening. And she does care about me and we reconcile. And we have, you know, it's been, like you said, kind of this whipsaw black and white going to extremes night, but I sleep well that night spooning her hard and we wake up the next day and things feel pretty good. You know, I'm glad that we have one full day left together. She's going to leave. This is on a Thursday. She's going to leave Friday. And at some point that day, she says she's actually probably going to leave that night. And she says, I know it sounds crazy, but I just feel like I need to get there. And at this point, I'm just being supportive. I'm like, if that's what feels right to you, I want you to do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. But inside, I'm feeling, I don't know if I'm feeling hurt so much as just anxious that she's leaving and I, and I don't want her to leave. And so that last day together is, it's by far the best day we have this visit. We go on a little hike together. We're talking, we're affectionate. The sex is really emotional and connected, but there's also this kind of anxiety where I'm like in the back of my mind, I'm like, is she really going to leave tonight? She's probably not going to leave tonight. And so I don't actually bring it up. I'm kind of hoping that, you know, if I don't bring it up, it won't happen. Something childlike about that. And finally at like 830 that night, after we've just seen this epic sunset, she says, all right, well, I got to get ready. And I'm like, "You're, you're really leaving? And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. And it happens so quickly. In 20 minutes, she's out the door. Mm-hmm. Her car's loaded up. And then she leaves. And then I feel okay about things the next day. And we text a little bit back and forth. And the day after that, I start feeling like, wait, this is not okay. I came across the country during a pandemic to quarantine with this woman and she couldn't even give it that one last night. And then I think, all right, Adam, don't engage in behavior to push her away. So call her up and ask her if she'd consider coming back. And I do. We have a nice conversation and I say, you know, I want you to consider coming back. And she says, I have thought about it, but I feel being here with my parents reinforces that this is the best thing for me right now. And I say, all right, well, then I really have nothing else to say. And I can see the anxiety on her face. And there's this part of me, even now, that really wants to reassure her, does not want to see her suffer. So I say, listen, I don't want you to stress out about this. I'm not saying that things are over. I'm just saying that I just, I need some space to process all of this. So why don't you just give me some time and I'll reach out when I'm ready. But if you feel like you need to talk to me for whatever reason, if it feels urgent, then of course, I'm always here for you. And so that's how we left things. Yeah. I mean, there's so many dynamics in what went on inside of you and between you and Clara during that period. And I think you highlighted a lot of them and I think they'll all resurface at some point and continue to come up. I was just one question. I'll, ask were you feeling any sadness that you couldn't be the person who comforted her during that time you know was there any competition with her parents unconsciously in you that's a curiosity that comes up for me and then well she does call me dad so that seems (laughs) like that was you were well with it you were firmly into your reproductive years when she was born that is true but that's a topic for another day. Uh-huh. The thing I the thing I really just wanted to highlight before we end is the communication between you two during this period of days. I'm sure you've heard of or read the book Nonviolent Communication. And it's a book that's very special to me. It is the book that I recommend most frequently to anyone in the world. I I firmly believe that if a person is to read just one English language book in their life, it should be nonviolent communication. 
And I Until think we that was not therapy the book. <laughs> <laughs> Part Correct. of a merchandising push. <laughs> Correct. All just, all just bromides. <laughs> it's a coffee table book. It's a coffee <laughs> table And I've not, I've not read my violent communication. Look, in so, look inside yourself, Adam Strauss. Screw you, man. For suggestion. No, that's man. one of your, that's one of your <laughs> Yeah, I think that during this period of days where things were whipsawing back and forth a a bit more communication in the style of nonviolent communication could have saved a lot of heartache on both sides a little more of you sharing with her vulnerably what exactly you were experiencing in response to what you were perceiving in her actions and her reciprocating the same, I think it pr- probably could have saved a little bit of strife and, and maybe next time we'll get further into what that might've looked like. And I will assign the book to you. I'm, as I've said previously, I'm not really a homework kind of therapist, but I will assign that book to you as homework at okay. either yeah. now or in the future. All right. Until our next session. Until our next session. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all of that. I look forward to uh, picking it back up, tearing into some of those juicy, juicy mom steaks that you laid at my doorstep. (laughs) Raw bloody mom steaks. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. All right, buddy. I I love you. All right, man. Look forward to the next one. Have a good one. I look forward to it too. You're welcome. Therapy. You are always welcome. Bye, man.